Welcome to the 462nd episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome, and thanks for tuning in. Well, I'm almost two weeks past the Long Haul 100 and feeling pretty good, pretty good. Um, The only thing I have left as far as niggles are some ankle tendons that are a little stiff, um, take a little while to get loosened up in the morning and stiffen up after my run. Um, Perhaps just a tiny bit of swelling still in those areas. Otherwise, um, you know, some quad stiffness and back tightness that has gradually improved pretty good over the last uh, couple of weeks. So all in all, I'm pretty happy. Um, I have required more sleep uh, in the past week. It's funny, I didn't feel sleep deprived horribly um, after that first day back. But, you know, I do think it's taken its toll um, as far as just needing a little bit extra sleep. Um, so trying to listen to my body and keep up with that. But uh, waking up refreshed. There's a couple things on my Garmin that I follow. Um, and the accuracy probably could be debated, but I think for the person, if you follow your own numbers, um, there's something to be said about it. And one of the things that I've talked about in the past is my body battery. Um, and it was you know, pretty low after the race. And then gradually would uh, has built back up, so I'm hitting about 85, 90 in the mornings. I think I had one morning I might have got to 100. After that, it kind of dwindles during the day and goes down to the 20s at night, 30. So not a whole lot off from my baseline before. I'm a pretty active person, so I usually go to work, run in the morning, go to work come home, do things around the house, and don't uh, really sit down or settle out to about 8, 30, 9 o'clock. So that's about usual for me. I, I usually run the tank pretty low before I start. So that seems to be back to normal. Training readiness has creeped up. There's a thing called heart rate variability, which is the little bit of time between each beat of your heart that's supposed to be variable. You want that to be, uh, you want to have an increased heart rate variability or a, a good heart rate variability. Um, and that was low. Actually, that that was low peak at my peak training and then was lower after the race. And that has gone back up. So I'm almost at my recovery state of that as well. So all in all, I think I'm going to make it. As with life, most things run, you run into a couple different ways of hearing things. And for me, a lot of things occur in a timely fashion. And um, I've run into a couple studies that I think I'll share with you that have supported some of my ideas um, that I've shared with you over the past and I, how they relate to running in life. So I think you, you might enjoy it. First thing I'd like to do is share a quote from a runner, um, very accomplished runner named Andy Jones Wilkins. He's not a professional runner. He was a very accomplished runner. Um, he is also a teacher and writer and also a podcaster. If you ever want to check him out, it's Cracker Brew with AJW is his podcast. He put a tweet out on Twitter that I thought was um, somewhat profound, at least to me. Um, he says, we have come to this sport, meaning ultra running, because it gives our lives meaning. In the end, it makes us more human to propel ourselves over the earth under our own power. And, of course, I um, 
think that mobility and movement and walking and running is is uh, very very important into one's health and longevity and um, glad to see AJ also brought it nicely into words. I think living in um, a lot of places in the U.S., it's not convenient to walk. If you live in a city, obviously people walk more. But in suburbia, uh, we tend to jump in the car uh, for every little thing. And I think we forget what it's like to walk and to be self-sufficient in moving from place to place. And, you know, after the uh, long haul 100 and uh, covering 100 miles over a period of time, uh, I've come to appreciate that. I've also come to appreciate uh, my sense of well-being and positivity since that. Maybe I'm just glad to not have to run 100 miles, but the euphoria has um, continued, and it's not just because I smile when I think of the belt buckle or the finish line, um, but I do think there's more to it than that. Certainly spending 31 hours with positive people in a positive environment outside in a place where I love as far as being outdoors, doing what I love, running with friends and, you know, a crew and, uh, you know, all that plays a role. But the other thing that plays a role is actually just being outside. I came across a study looking at light exposure and mental health. And we know that running in and of itself improves mental health. And there have been some studies that look at running distances um, has the benefits of helping depression as much or more than medication. I am not telling people to stop their medication. I am telling people to get outside and run. But it's more than just running. It's actually what happens to us when we run outside, and that is being in the light. The study talks about how the majority of people in the United States spend 90% of their day indoors, and consequently, we don't get enough light exposure. And the study looks at light exposure uh, predominantly from the sun's light. Sometimes we think it's cloudy and we don't get light exposure, but if you go out with a light meter... And I actually downloaded a light meter after reading this study that can give you an instantaneous result of the amount of light in Lux, both outside and indoors, by using your phone's camera. And supposedly it's pretty accurate. Um, but if you're outside, um, even so I measured the first time right before sunset and the lux were still over 1000 and then i came inside and under a light inside indoors it was only 100 to 200 lux so that is the variation that we see cloudy day versus inside lighting so no matter how bright you think the indoor lights are they have nothing compared to the sun's intensity with regards to brightness and our circadian rhythms and subsequent mental health are very much affected by our exposure to sunlight, both in the morning and right before sunset. So right at sunlight and right at sunset um, is the best time to get adequate light exposure to set our 
uh, circadian rhythm. Light during midday doesn't do one thing or another to um, help your circadian rhythm. Even um, there was a discussion that blue light and things like that at night, which we think are bad, don't disrupt our circadian rhythm near as much as not having the exposure to morning light and evening light. And the best way to get it is through your retina. So if you are all covered up with sunglasses on, you're not going to get the morning sun or the afternoon pre-sunset sun as well. Again, cloudy, you're still getting much more light outside than you can inside. And this study looked at things such as depression, um, psychotic events, bipolar disorder, uh, anxiety, and again, uh, adequate exposure in the morning and the evening uh, are very important to this health. And so I thought, it's like, geez, I had 31 hours. Certainly I saw the sun come up and the sun go down. I saw the sun come up when we started the race. I saw the sun go down. I saw the sun come up the next morning. No wonder I I had such a great exposure. Um, And perhaps that was um, partly why the sleep deprivation wasn't so bad is that I saw those different uh, or I had that exposure to to the light. But it's just another reason to get outside to exercise to get outside and get some air and when you think about it kids you know that are inside all day they you know um and they may have some affective disorder uh, not being exposed to the sunlight what effect that can have certainly older people we know as far as immune health sunlight is very important with regards to vitamin d but again their circadian rhythm usually older people have more difficulty sleeping than younger people um, so just getting outside and getting some exposure to light in, um, in the evening hours and in the morning hours can have, um, you know, potentially a, a great benefit to your metal, mental health. And it's a pretty easy thing to do. Uh, even in cold conditions up north, um, again, you're still going to get light um, both in the morning and early evenings. And it doesn't matter, you know, if it gets dark at 4.30, then get out there at 3, you know, and, um, and get some, some uh, light exposure. Uh, and it could help with those winter blues when people are getting even less outdoor exposure. Okay, so I said I'd talk about nutrition on this podcast and get away from all that exercise stuff that uh, maybe some people don't want to hear, although you should want to hear it and you should get outside and exercise. But nevertheless... Um, people often come and say, you know, I'm not losing weight because I'm not exercising. Or I only got to the gym one time this past week, and I'm, but I'm ramping it up. Um, after the race was over and the swelling in my legs pretty much resolved, like my feet, um, so there was some fluid there that I had put fluid in my hands and feet. So few days after that all kind of resolved that my fluid balance I thought was pretty good, uh, turns out I lost one pound during the race. 31 hours moving, burning, you know, 80 to 100 calories for 100 miles. I lost one pound. And I wasn't trying to lose weight, but that should put it in perspective when you're looking at exercise to help you lose weight. Now, granted, I, I took in um, as many calories as I really could during, during that exertion. Um, and, you know, I was probably at a deficit. Well, if I lost a pound, I was at a deficit of at least, 
um, 35, 3,600 calories that I burned uh, of myself to keep going. We know that our bodies can only process so many calories per hour. We have to absorb the food, get it into our bloodstream, turn it into energy, and there's only so much that our gut can absorb uh, and accomplished on you know per hour and that's really what limits activity is the ability to get in enough calories for a particular exertion level to keep yourself going uh, when you can't get in enough calories uh, which are mainly carbohydrates your body has to burn fat which means your heart rate has to slow down so if you're just walking or moving very slowly your body can burn fat and and you can um, you know, you'll, you can burn your own stores to some degree, but you still need uh, some carbohydrate to keep the, the, the boiler room or the fire burning. If you're not um, using those calories, then they're either eliminated or stored. So in a day-to-day, um, you know, period, exercising 30 minutes to an hour and then, you know, just walking around living life, we, we just really don't burn excessive amounts of calories and so our caloric need is based on our lean body mass not what our actual weight is but our lean body mass so if you're not very tall you don't really need that much and if you're not moving uh, continuously you you, you know your your body's very much capable of burning its fat stores and you don't need a whole lot of extra food Um, and in today's calorie dense environment with all the foods and different additives uh, you know whether there's palm oil and canola oil and um, sugar and you know all different kinds of additives in the the food the processed foods um, it makes things so calorically dense that we can't keep up when you know I talk about what I eat on a daily basis I look at my plate um, I eat predominantly fruit for breakfast I uh, my omega three seed of choice is chia seeds so i have some chia seed with a little bit of soy milk to make them uh, dissolve in the microwave or thicken up in the microwave with my fruit sour bread uh, sour um, dough bread and some jam or is is my usual breakfast for the most part on the weekends we might have uh, a buckwheat um, pancake um, or a tofu egg scramble but during the week it is predominantly almost always fruit, chia seed, and sourdough toast. Lunch, I try to get my big green salad um, with usually leftovers. Um, if there are no leftovers, it's you know beans or rice and beans or just rice, um, a variety of vegetables. It's a very large salad. I try to get either rice or beans, usually not both, but sometimes yes, depending. I always have fruit after lunch, or right, you know, right as my dessert is is fruit. Uh, here recently, pears have been pretty good, so it's been pears. A lot of times, it's apples at lunch. In the morning, I prefer melons, you know, honeydew, watermelon, mango, papaya, um, or is usually my go-to morning fruit. If I have dragon fruit, yes, uh, those are kind of my favorite morning ones. If uh, if persimmons are in. Uh, available that would be a morning if black cherries are available that would be my morning I usually do my berries in the evening as a dessert Um, I like frozen blueberries so that's what I usually use if I can get some good blackberries or raspberries in the morning I'll I'll do those as well Um, it just seems that blueberries aren't that great here fresh Um, so I'd rather have them frozen they're they're much more sweet 
Uh, dinner, I look to have a nitric oxide producing green, so it might be cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, but there's always that. I eat mushrooms several days a week. I think I've had mushrooms every day this week in one form or another, either a big portobello mushroom, sliced mushrooms in a sauce, um, mushrooms in a stir fry for their anti-cancer benefits. So it's always a nitric oxide producing green, mushrooms, uh, and then I might have rice uh, or, or pasta or a potato. So one night it was sweet potato, uh, one night it was rice, one night it was pasta. Um, and that's the, those um, pasta and rice are much less than the vegetables. So the vegetables are the main part of my meal. Um, the, the beans in the evening will either be bean, white beans, pinto beans, um, cranberry beans, or tofu usually. So that's what I look at to my plate to make sure that happens. And I've done the same thing post-race as I did pre-race. Um, those are just the things that are on my plate that, that go back and forth. I may have a soup. If I have a soup, it's going to have one of those vegetables. Those vegetables in it may have, you know, the carrots and the peppers and all those things vary, whether it's zucchini, squash, eggplant, those varies. Uh, and I have those during the week too. But the main ingredients are, are what I measured or what I mentioned. So I'm looking for anti-cancer antioxidants. I'm looking for fiber. I'm looking for nitric oxide producing vegetables. Um, I'm looking for, I said fiber, uh, my protein source is the beans. Um, a grain adds some more protein, kind of filler to keep me full. Um, and I'm recovering fine from a hundred mile race. I don't have any muscle soreness or excessive fatigue. Um, again, my weight's not falling off. I feel my muscle mass is good. So there you have it. No, no big alteration um, just because I had a weekend that had a lot of heavy exertion. So when I was running that 100-mile race, besides peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and some ramen noodles and goo uh, and my gnarly electrolyte drink, I had Oreos. And some people are shocked um, because of the Oreos, but uh, for some reason the sugar and fat in the Oreos are easily absorbed and it was a pretty good fuel for running. Interestingly, uh, there, and you may have heard of it, there has a study out about Oreos. Um, it's not a good study, but it's highly, uh, it's been highly publicized because the results are what people want to hear. Um, the study was done by a medical student, and he was the subject of the study as well, and it was published. I'll make a link to it. Uh, but basically, it's the Oreo study, and basically the conclusion said that people's cholesterol, this or this person's cholesterol, who was on a carnivore diet and had an extremely high cholesterol, his cholesterol was lowered more with Oreos than a statin drug in a crossover washout type study. So uh, he was on a... Um, carnivore diet, eating meat, um, organs, eggs, dairy. Um, he was lean. He had a normal to low body mass index. He had uh, went on that diet um, for, I think, a history of ulcerative colitis and felt like he was better um, and decided to test the theory that cholesterol um, was not significantly affected by statin therapy or... Um, 
well affected or worth taking because um, it didn't do much. So his cholesterol came, his, so his cholesterol on the carnivore diet was well into the uh, 400s with LDL up into the 300s. And he did the Oreos and it came down like 200 points. And then when he did the, uh, he washed out so he didn't have any Oreos, went back to baseline, eating what he was eating before his carnivore diet, and then took a statin for six weeks. And his cholesterol only came down um, a fraction, um, you know, it came down 40, 50 points. Um, so therefore, statins don't work, Oreos do. Um, don't bother with statins. He didn't really say to eat Oreos, but um, again, the carnivore community was claiming that, um, see, cholesterol is high, it's supposed to be high, so it's not a problem, and, um, you know, if anything, you know, Oreos, I don't, I don't, well, the mechanism um, that the Oreos brought it down uh, had been explained before, and basically, um, to go back a little bit, when people are on a carnivore diet, so they're just eating meat and organs and dairy, and they're not eating, um, you know, they might eat a little bit of greens, but it's very, very little in the way of carbohydrate, uh, certainly no grains or starches. Um, and if someone is lean, there is a paradoxical reaction where the body breaks down cholesterol, and so their cholesterol will go very high. And someone that is normal or overweight often you don't see that high cholesterol. I have actually seen it, but it tends to be in more lean individuals, their cholesterol goes very, very high. And the Oreos, by giving them carbohydrate and sugar, causes, again, a paradoxical um, decrease in some of the carriers that the cholesterol actually drops. So it's not that Oreos are healthy, it's that in a lean individual, because they're not getting any exposure to carbohydrates, it shifts this reaction more so that they're not making quite as much cholesterol or they're not dumping as much cholesterol into the bloodstream as before. So it gives no credence to eating Oreos. It gives no credence to um, cholesterol being okay um, in my eyes, in the eyes of the carnivore people, they think that having that cholesterol is okay because they look good on the outside and they're lean and muscular and everything's okay. Um, however, there have been studies in people that have this very high cholesterol. They look and they have uh, plaques that develop at a quite an early premature age. So um, that really doesn't hold out. Uh, when people say they feel great, they don't have any problem, it's usually because they're looking at things that they want to look at instead of everything. But if you go back and let's just kind of break it down a little bit, um, you know, people grab on to what they want to hear. And we know that when we're born and as children, um, we have low cholesterol. So cholesterol, when you're born in a teenager, or somewhere around 150. If your cholesterol, the only time cholesterol is very, very high is in a familial hyperlipidemia genetic disorder. And those people actually have vascular disease at an early age. So if your cholesterol is normal uh, when you're young, you typically don't have cardiovascular disease. And people don't get cardiovascular disease until they get older. So 50s, you know, they start, you know, getting, starting to have the incidence of cardiovascular disease start to go up, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and on. Um, if you have familial high cholesterol, then that increases your risk of cardiovascular disease at an early age. So 
these are observations. They're not randomized controlled, placebo-controlled trials, but they are very good observations that hold over the test of time in a large, large populations of people throughout the world. The other observation um, is that people that have type 1 or juvenile diabetes don't make insulin. They can't absorb nutrients, and without the insulin, and they're, actually they would starve to death because they can't get nutrients in their system, but without the insulin in the intake of carbohydrates, their glucose in their blood tends to go 400, 500, and they go into an acidotic state, and bad things happen. Um, the higher the glucose is over the, over the longer period of time, increased, they have a premature increased risk of vascular disease that affects the eyes, the kidneys, the, the blood vessels to the heart, brain, lungs, and periphery. So we know that juvenile diabetes tend to get vascular complications at a very early age, especially when poorly controlled. The better they have control, the later uh, the disease starts, the secondary side effects of having their disease start to occur. In people with adult-onset diabetes, they be, typically have insulin resistance. Typically, most are overweight. They produce too much insulin, and their glucoses start to rise a little over 100, then 250 and 300. And very rarely do those people get into the four or 500 range until their pancreas is kind of shot and their ability to put out insulin uh, decreases or they're um, so insensitive to the insulin that, that they almost become a type 1 diabetic. Those people also have premature risk for cardiovascular disease and vascular disease. So the same retinopathy, kidney disease, heart disease occurs in adult-onset diabetes as well, not as early, predominantly because their disease does not start out as early. It doesn't typically hit people until their 40s, 50s, 60s before they become uh, diabetic, and again, the glucose uh, typically is not as nearly as high, so they don't have the acid base wings either. So, take-home message is that people that have um, diabetes get vascular disease um, from um, growth factors, inflammatory conditions, and people that, um, as they get older and their cholesterol goes up, tend to have more cardiovascular disease. So why in the world would you think that high cholesterol as a result of way, of way of eating would be any different and not cause vascular disease? So people that become truly carnivores, not, not the people that have the cheat days and don't get their weight off and everything, but if they become very, very lean and their cholesterol goes up and they are following a carnivore diet, they're not taking in any source of glucose for the most part, and their insulin sensitivity does improve because they become more lean and they're not taking in any glucose, so their glucose goes down. So you can say that, yes, it would be uh, somewhat beneficial in that arena. However, people don't normally stay that way, so they're back and forth. Uh, and again, with these high lipid levels, the risk is to have premature vascular disease. The other thing you need to look at with a carnivore diet is the toxins associated with the, with the eating the animals themselves. So 
everybody talks about grass-fed this and grass-fed that, but, you know, go ahead and trace that back. But I learned something today um, looking at a ranching website, and I quote, Your steer is finished when he has fully filled out his brisket, which is the fatty area between the front legs, and has fat rolls of his tail head, which typically is 14 to 18 months of age. A grass-fed steer, this takes usually 26 to 28 months. So when a steer's body is done putting on marble, he starts putting on fat in other places. Steers, cows, mammals, marbling, fat in other places. Get the picture? Um, You know, so... Could it be that we marble before we start to have a big accumulation of fat mass and our insulin resistance is starting much earlier than we think it is because we have so much marbling or fat in our muscle before we start to accumulate it other places? I'm not so sure that this is not far off. Nevertheless, when we look at toxins, your grass-fed steer spends twice as much time eating grass that may or may not be contaminated with herbicides, pesticides, and exposure to toxins than the non-grass-fed grain and corn and grass-fed animal. Granted, they have their own exposures, feedlots, lack of vitamins, lack of minerals. Uh, We know that dairy cows are often anemic, you know, undernourished because of what they're put through. But there's also things like viruses and prions that are associated with the meat uh, that they pass along that we can eat, some of which are not destroyed by cooking. So your glucose sensitivity might improve if you're very lean on your carnivore diet and you're 25 or 30 years of age, But what happens with the toxicity that you're consuming over eating mass amounts of this stuff over time with a high cholesterol, because again, the more lean you are, the more likely you are to have a higher cholesterol. So, you know, I'm sitting back and watching these people. This is not going to be a good outcome from a lot of of people. Um, You know, just like people take a diet pill thinking that if they can just get ahead of the game, then they'll go back to, you know, not abusing themselves. But there's a risk that you run by exposing yourself to environmental toxins, a risk that you would expose yourself to other poisons and potential side effects of medications that um, nobody knows what time period before the damage is done and you can't really turn that back so easy. So think about that when your um, carnivore friends are taunting you for eating your um, arugula that took about six weeks to grow. So even if you didn't get organically grown vegetables, your toxin exposure is so much less than something that spent one to two years accumulating toxins in their muscle and in their fat. Because again, if they're marbled, there is fat in the muscle and fat is where the toxins are. So the thing that we, so you store a fatty fish, the toxins are there, the dioxins, the PCB, the mush, the, the mercury, the heavy metals, same thing with the, the cows and the steers. So the heavy metals, 
Um, and again, all the toxins, environmental pollutants that they're exposed to um, get to happen for a much longer period of time than the, it takes to grow a vegetable into full ripeness and uh, maturity. Most of the carnivores eat so much meat that they can't afford to eat the really good stuff, so they're always looking for deals. And again, when you start looking for deals and cheap cuts of meat, you're getting more toxin exposure. Um, you know, and again, when you're looking at fast food meats, you're even getting more uh, toxin exposure. So takeaways for today's podcast is to get up and see the sunrise. Walk outside and take your dog for a little walk, throw the ball for your dog, or just um, play with your kids a little bit before the sun goes down, and then uh, cook at home and focus on having some nitric oxide-producing greens, some mushrooms, some vegetables, uh, some high-fiber beans and whole grains, and life will be good for everyone. If you'd like to learn more about nutrition or exercise or just like to um, see what we have available on our members-only website, uh, you can join our practice for $25 a month to get access to everything, including our nutrition classes and our movement classes. We'd love to have you as a full member. Uh, we do nutrition and um, uh, I consult with people once a month um, as a level three member. We have a dietitian-only consultation every month with full access to our membership, um, and that's available as a level one, uh, sorry, a level two member. And we have a full membership where I can act as your physician um, and uh, guide you in anything that you would like, and you have full access to me any time of day or night, uh, as well as uh, nutrition consults. So we'd love to help you in our in our health uh, in your healthcare journey. If you think you would be interested in a monthly live podcast where you could participate and ask questions, uh, please send me an email at jamie at drdelaney.com. We are investigating that as a possible um, uh, program for people as well uh, through a Patreon type of subscription. So let me know if you have interest in that. Please share the podcast with your friends. It's the best way to get things out there and to get more people on your side and less people telling you should be a carnivore. My next race is the Cruel Jewel 56-mile race in Georgia. Um, maybe I'll get to see you there. And then it's off to Colorado in the summertime for the Silver Rust 50 and the Leadville 100 uh, trail race. So I've got a lot of work to do a little bit more healing until then. But uh, again, email me at jamie at drdelaney.com if you have some more interest in um, being more of a um, participating member of our practice. Certainly go over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, where you can learn more about the practice. Thanks as always for listening.